A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Andrew Padilla, who runs a data and software consulting company, DataSecchia, and also serves as the editor of the Data Mesh Learning Community Newsletter. This one is a bit more philosophical about sharing information slash knowledge, so it's one to sit and think over. Things in quotes are direct from Andrew. Some key takeaways slash thoughts that come from Andrew's view of data mesh and the data space in general. Number one, to move from sharing the ones and zeros of data to actually sharing knowledge, we need to harmonize data, metadata, and code. He called this, quote unquote, the digital embodiment of knowledge. That's where Andrew hopes the mesh data products can head, is embodying that knowledge. Number two, Software development isn't cutting it for sharing actual knowledge. Will data product development? Uh, Not sure. Do we need to move to a knowledge-centered development instead? This remains to be seen. Number three, we still don't know how to model well in data what is going on in the real world. What are the experiences of the organization? Can we really define a quote-unquote organizational experience. Event storming tries but seems to fall short quite often. Number four, we must learn to treat organizations like living entities. Organizational experiences cross multiple domains, and the types of experiences will change. They'll evolve, possibly quite quickly. 
we have to get better at modeling those, those experiences and evolving how we share knowledge about those experiences. Number five, knowledge graphs are the best way we currently have for combining information across domains. We still haven't fully figured out how to leverage our cross-domain knowledge, though. Number six, historically, we've bent our ways of working to the limitations of the machines. We need to spend more time on bending the machines to better match the way humans store, process, and share knowledge. Number seven, data centricity is an interesting concept, but might take our current imbalance of data versus operational focus over towards data. That might be what is necessary to really get to a balance and and really start to head in the right direction, it remains to be seen. But it's crucial to understand a data-first focus isn't necessarily a knowledge-first or a a knowledge-as-a-first-class citizen approach. So just shifting over towards the uh, kind of data centricity, the data-first, doesn't mean that we're really going to be sharing that knowledge. Number eight, it's important to understand that mesh data products are a means to an end in data mesh. Yes, they are crucial to sharing information, but they are there to serve a purpose, not that they are the purpose. Finally, number nine, in data mesh, it can be easy to focus too much on creating data products of immediate utility or that are high value in and of themselves. But it's important to think about how data products together create value, and maybe not immediate value, to really drive forward our understanding of the organization's knowledge and experience. If we're overly focused on very, very immediate results, it might mean that we really miss out on the kind of bigger picture because we're too focused myopically on the small picture. So this one's probably going to leave you with more questions than answers, but I think it's uh, an interesting way of looking at the world. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got uh, Andrew Padilla here, and he's kind of one of the OG community members of the Data Mesh learning community. He's been in there, I think, since day one. Um, And uh, Andrew also has his own consulting company, uh, Data Secchia, and he's also been the editor of the Data Mesh learning newsletter for months and months, almost, uh, <laughs> I think it's been like eight, nine months since you took over. And so uh, he's been doing really, really great work there. Um, what we're going to talk about today, it's probably going to be a bit of a free ranging conversation, but uh, we're going to start at least from the idea of like, what is the, what, you know, data product is what most people talk about it, but why we should maybe even think about calling it the data quantum just to really differentiate it and what that means and how it's really the key to understanding how we actually should be doing data mesh uh, right. So 
can be a very, very free ranging conversation. Uh, before we jump into that, Andrew, if you don't give, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself and your background, and then we can kind of jump into the conversation at hand. Uh, hey, Scott, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, going to enjoy this conversation, I'm sure. Uh, uh, for everyone who doesn't know me, my name is Andrew Padilla. I own a company called Data Secchia that specializes in data management uh, concerns. Uh, my background historically has been in data integration, primarily in the healthcare domain, although I branched out uh, over recent years um, and, and or other software products that focus on data management concerns. So that's where uh, my lens is going to be focused from probably today. Yeah. And, and so we were looking at talking about kind of what is the the data quantum and why it's key? Why, why don't we start with a little bit about your your viewpoint on this and kind of what what makes it such a crucial aspect to nail? Because so many people are having difficulty defining what should be their data product or data quantum or whatever. Like, how do you define that? Like, from a technology standpoint or you know technical bent, and how do you focus? How do you define it for the business people so they understand if you start to talk APIs with the business people you've already lost? So I, I agree with you that it's very, very crucial. But like, what, why don't you give people a bit of your your kind of view on this and why it's so important to get right? Sure. So to start off, I think that, you know, the, the data product components, as it's described by Jamak. Um, is is right on the money, and I've noticed that in, in in my own experience, that you know, oftentimes if you're in software development, uh, as you're going through projects, you notice that there is a disconnect between you know the data that you're using, the metadata that describes it, and your software code in in the development lifecycle uh, when you're deploying, etc. It, it kind of begs for something more. And I think uh, a lot of people have come to that conclusion, and probably whether they've said it or not, um, have understood that the, these sorts of things have an affinity to one another and they belong together. And I think that's when uh, you really come to think, well, is, is this a higher level of abstraction that needs to be you know, put together as one? And, and I think that's exactly what Jamak was describing when she described a data product as the architectural quantum something that's indivisible and needs to be thought of at that level so that you can do the interesting things that we would like to do with data. And today, although this is changing slowly, uh, we're starting to think of it in that way. And you, you talked about kind of the, it's the harmony between the data, metadata and the code, but that it's not really, we, we haven't figured out how to actually hit those those harmonies, right? That we, we haven't, right. we, we've got just kind of different discordant sounds that aren't really meshing well together. So like, how do you think that we, we start to move towards that? And, and Jamak is kind of a, a coloring to this is Jamak is, is kind of frustrated by the concept of data and metadata because it's the information. The da data and metadata together is the information and you can't really separate the two or what what's the layering between those. So I think she's fully in agreement with what you're saying, but like, how have you started to see people move towards that or how how do you think we can move towards that? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I think that at some point we have to 
perhaps even lose the distinction between software development and data product development as, as folks are starting to think about it now and think more towards knowledge development. Because in my mind, uh, the kind of the digital embodiment of human knowledge uh, that we've been building so far, although it's been somewhat disjointed, are these three components, data and metadata and, and, and code, which is essentially the behavior around um, the data and metadata, that interaction. So I think, and, and probably the folks in the knowledge graph camp would, would <laughs> probably agree that we're talking about knowledge development and that is the new kind of minimum bar or how we start to think about um, the experiences that happen inside the organization and how do we capture those and how do we um, leverage those um, dynamically much in the same way that people, and I love to use the, the bio biological kind of tie-ins, how do, how do people um, develop ideas or share their experiences? We don't talk in terms of Oh, you know, synapses or, or neurons. We talk in terms of what happened yesterday and what the experience was and, and, and what you thought of it. And so I think what we're seeing here is the very beginning of seeing what we're building in the electronic world or, or the virtual world is something that is, that is kind of the electronic embodiment of knowledge. And that is the data product as we, as we describe it today. This is the first, first stage of that. Sounds far out, but I do think we're going there. Yeah, and when you talk about that experience, I, I want to um, understand something because you talked about the internal experience. Do you mean, or the experience for the organization, I think is how you said it. Do you mean that that's specifically only internal facing or that, I mean, I do think that we've kind of moved much more towards um the external experience when we think about software as well, when we think about customers and that it's, you know, UX and all that is, is so crucial to it. So do you think it's all tied into one or do you kind of look to separate the experience to those internal to the organization and those external to the organization? Just because I think one thing that I'm struggling with, with data mesh a little bit is there's so much context already in people's heads that if we're trying to add so much more, I mean, could this simplify that context? Could it <laughs> complicate it? I, it's, it's, it's such a, like you said, it's a little bit far out there from where we are right now, but I don't think it's far out there when you actually think about what are we trying to accomplish from a high level? Uh, no, and I would agree. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, it's clear. I think it becomes crystal clear when you start thinking about you know, uh, th this is all about modeling what people do in the real world, right? So um, we're not confined to, you know, the conversations and or the interactions we have in the organizations. And, and in fact, domains are attempting to model, you know, uh, the places in which we, we have these interactions and learn and have a certain perspective. Uh, so likewise, I don't know that there's any kind of boundaries or limitations to you know, whether or not uh, the knowledge is acquired internally or externally, but certainly there are uh, boundaries in terms of how you think about things in the same way that people, you know, may have conversations at a given place. And so place has, you know, defines context. And, and so we learn things from a certain perspective in one, one interaction. Um, and then if we are among another group of people or in another place, the context defines uh, the learnings that we that we take from there. 
in the end, we all, we kind of put them all together and, and come up to our own opinions. I mean, that's the insider knowledge that we're attempting to emulate here in, in, um, in, in a digital common, so to speak. But, um, I, I do think in the end, uh, we will have, you know, it should be unbounded in that sense. And, and I think that's where we're going. I always thought that data mesh was most perfectly suited for inter or cross organizational purposes because they have those kinds of pain points that it describes. And internally, often you can get around these up to a point uh, by, you know, just having this kind of, you know, tribal knowledge and, and just being able to push through the issues about gaps in knowledge that are in the system. People can kind of get through those internally and, until they can't, until it gets so large that that it's impossible uh, to move forward without extracting that from from the people who have that expertise. Yeah, I, I kind of think of it, um, for some reason, it just popped into my head, but that when what we've done historically is built kind of these one-to-one threads. And when you think about those threads all crossing throughout the organization, it's not that bad until it is because you've just got all these kind of threads that are all now you know, going all past each other and you just create this big knot and trying to push another thread through or trying to, uh, you know, extract a single thread to figure out what's going on and follow that one thread. I don't know if, if you've ever had that kind of balled up uh, headphones or anything in your pocket where you're trying to <laughs> untangle all of that and how fun that can be. But I, I think data mesh is not, it's one of those things where there are some people out there saying, well, everybody should do data mesh. And, you know, there's a cost to decentralization and, and things like that. And I think a lot of people can learn from this, but I, I do think it's it's not until you really run across these challenges that, like you said, you can kind of push forward and push through cost benefit. Is, is there really a reason to do this just for the sake of doing it? You might have a higher return, but your investment's <laughs> your data capabilities are going to be so, so much higher. So I think it's it's a little bit of buyer beware. I think you and I have shared that um, with each other quite a bit. Yeah, definitely agree. I, I do think, uh, to be clear, that data mesh is for um, organizations that have larger data teams and are experiencing those pain points, um, then it starts to make sense. I don't think in life there is any single silver, silver bullet solution that is agnostic to the context in which you apply it. And this is definitely the case um, here. Uh, if you even look at, you know, people refer to startups as being very nimble and agile because they can just, you know, talk to each other. They're all in the same room possibly. And they, they have that because of the environment that they're in. But of course they experience pain points and they start to um, emulate uh, what they're, larger organizational brothers start to look like, you know, as, as they get larger. And, I, and I've experienced that being part of a small startup and then moving on to, you know, Fortune 500 employer. Uh, you can see the differences there and the, and the culture is there for a reason and, the, and the, the way they interact is there for a reason. And uh, that's just a, you know, a product of growth. Yeah. And, I'd like to circle back on on the stuff that you were um, talking about as well of this sharing experiences. Um, it, it for myself, I haven't seen anybody that's doing this very well, right? So 
it can feel pretty theoretical. Do you have any kind of advice or approach or information that you'd kind of tell somebody if it, let's say they go, Andrew, I'm, I'm hundred percent in line with everything you just said. Like, where, where do I go next? Like, what do I learn about this? Is it the, the knowledge graph stuff? Is it, um, is it the Dave McComb type of, um, you know, the, I can't even think of that, the phrasing right now, but data centricity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like, where, where would you tell people to, um, to kind of look first or, or to start to poke at and see, are, is this just a framing on a problem that we've known exists and that we we can think of it from a new approach because that's an easier way to move forward than do I have to completely uh, reframe my entire world? Yeah, so I don't, I'm not necessarily sure that I have advice for people. I'm kind of evolving this point of view of, of thinking about um, the knowledge in an, ex- in, the, in, in an organization as experience. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I can push in anybody to like a certain direction, but I, I think it's a good thought experiment because what we're trying to do here is model, again, everyday, the everyday world and, and those interactions. And so if you think about experience on a human level and apply it to an organization, um, you know, organizations in, in some ways, in, in a legal sense, are living entities. And the where data and, and software and metadata, where they all come in is they are kind of, if you think of it this way, they're kind of the embodiment of the, of the organizational experience. And so, um, you know, how do you effectively curate that so that, you know, you're making the most of that? We, we do it every day without even thinking about it. Uh, we, we experience different places, talk to different people, et cetera. Uh, in the end, we come to our own conclusions about um, you know, decisions that we make. Uh, but I, I think at the very least, it's a useful thought experiment to say, what does it mean for an organization to have experience and, and what are we trying to do with it? Well, certainly knowledge is the acquisition of experiences, right? And so I think it does kind of overlay well to what we're starting to see in data mesh. And if we kind of think in this way, it, it may set a path for um, for where we want to go. Uh, we're, we're building kind of like this uh, meta-human entity in a sense for the organization. Um, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, I, I think it, it ties into some of the conversations uh, that, of past episodes around domain-driven design about the concept of event storming. So the organization has an experience. You know, it's not event as in event streaming and things like that, but there is something that has happened. And how do we represent that? How do we abstract that into such a way that that other people can consume it and that we can somewhat standardize what happened with that experience just so that it's not that every single experience is in and of itself. It's I've kind of talked about this with um, 
you know, what Jamak has talked about with the experience plane and data mesh of if every single data quantum is uh, a completely new user experience, that's going to be an awful user experience for somebody trying to consume because you have to learn entirely new ways of, of um, accessing this information each time you go to, to from a different source. So like, how how do we think about what the abstraction or the way to actually model that that maximizes the context and then kind of what we've talked about privately as well of how do we evolve the concept of these experiences because it might be that this was kind of the standard experience you know six months ago obviously Vasylum talked about on his episode of um, their concept of an order is kind of 10x larger in scale because it's so different than it, it was three, four years ago. So like, how do we think about that evolution and how do we think about actually translating those experiences into, into information or knowledge or, or things like that? What, what have you seen there that's useful for people to start to, to kind of poke at? Um, yeah. So you know, the experiences that we have uh, is, is people, they never live on an island. So it would be very foreign uh, for a person to have <laughs> experiences uh, in isolation. And, and so uh, so what is different about that versus a, a very real reality um, in, in organizations today where we have these silos, uh, where there, there's no connection between uh, the experiences of one domain and another? Uh, and, and the difference is, is that, you know, we're constantly tying together as we experience things, other, other things that occur there that has, a, have occurred in our lives and tying together um, this, this sort of mapping that makes sense to us. And it's a continual process. So we look at that as kind of a reference or a model. I think that there, there should be some way that, um, as we're building out uh, something that adheres to data mesh principles that we are uh, constantly, as we say, uh, trying to make sense of or map uh, the knowledge that we're getting from, from the different areas in the organization as we move forward. And that's just as important as collecting it, um, uh, definitely establishing links uh, from one domain to the next yeah, as that kind of uh, life cycle uh, makes the most sense to me. Um, I don't know in practice how folks are doing that today. Um, if this is kind of thought of after a domain product is being built for those that are actually out there in the, in the wild um, implementing uh, data mesh architectures. But uh, th- that's how I think of it. Yeah, I, I think I think it makes sense. And I think so much of the conversations around data mesh and data specifically um, kind of more generally, but very, you know, it's that we get way too much into the, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? Instead of like, what are we trying to accomplish? And a lot of what you're talking about is that like, we're trying to accomplish an understanding and an ability to connect 
the understandings of, of what is occurring, you know, as you're talking about the organizational experience from this domain and this domain that they aren't in, in a vacuum, right? Like it's not, especially when you think about like the customer domain, that's not, <laughs> we have it as a domain just so that we have a bounded context around it, that we don't have to think about the entire organization in every way at all points. So um, I think what people have started to talk about is that they're using knowledge graphs to show people that there are connections. But I think exactly what you're talking about, we need to have the way that we can manifest those connections for people to actually leverage them when we've discovered them and, and we want to share them. Um, what I know you're a big fan of, of knowledge graphs and, and things like that. How do you see knowledge graphs starting to, to play into this or, or where do you think knowledge graphs should play, um, wh whether it's what people are doing or not? Yeah, so I, I am a big fan, fan of, of knowledge graphs. And, and from the very beginning, even though I was uh, pretty new to knowledge graphs, I, I really bought into to the concept behind them. Um, and within the context of data mesh, I, I really see knowledge graphs as, as the glue to the domains. Um, providing those connections as you're curating domain-specific knowledge, that you are also making those connections. Like we seamlessly do that, and I keep going back to like this human reference to how we, you know, gather knowledge and make sense of that. How we how we get to understanding, and that's really the goal. Um, but we're we're constantly cross-referencing, um, you know, the things we do in different places and how it relates to what we're doing now. And if you think of that in terms of domains, these are all just, you know, time and place scenarios that we that we acquire uh, experiences. And, and so uh, where knowledge graphs could play a pivotal role here is being able to provide those linkages or tie ins as an integral process of not only developing and, and offering um, the domain knowledge from a from a particular organizational unit. Uh, let's say, uh, to other ones, uh, such that it is it is seamless for you to be able to provide those linkages from other domains as you move along. Um, and I know that's the goal, but I, I think it's part and parcel of actually even just curating the data within the domain that you have this easy access to it. And, and going back uh, to, you know, how we do things as, as, as people, you know, when I'm thinking about a topic, you and I are having a conversation in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about another conversation that is related, right? And, and relationships is what Knowledge Graphs is all about. And I'm making sense of it as I'm developing my own thoughts on it or, you know, taking your thoughts and just, you know, accept, accepting them or rejecting them or whatever the case may be. Um, I'm doing that as part of that kind of curation process. So what would it take for us to do that in, in technology, in the, in the data world? It, it means that as we are curating domain-specific knowledge, that we have complete unfettered access uh, and, uh, to other knowledge in the domain as we're, as we're you know, acquiring this knowledge. So if something comes in, on, you know, some piece of data comes in on a given domain, we, we were able to make that connection to a relationship somewhere else. Now, is this technologically um, commonplace or feasible now? I, I don't think so. Is it possible? I certainly do think so. 
I think that it is possible. But the first thing that we need to do is is think about, you know, you know what we naturally do as people, because we're in the end, we always end up making things that are kind of images of, of how we do things, right? Um, that almost sounds biblical, but I don't mean it in that sense. But we, we tend to do things. We operate in a certain way. So when we want to look for a model as to how we want to move forward technology, uh, we just look no further than the interactions we have. And in a sense, I think we started to do that, um, but just dig deeper into how we gain insights. And we're constantly making connections, even as we're acquiring knowledge in a certain time and place. I had almost a, a petulant thought here, which is, so when we talk about Conway's law, it's about how the organization, you know, it's it's tied into how the organization communicates and works and things together, right? Is there a higher law of we need to adapt our systems to really work in the way that that humans in general work with information themselves, right? Because I don't think we've focused as much on the, we were talking about the organizational experience, but the human experience of, of bringing in that those past um, bits of, of information and conversation and that, you know, okay, should I be changing my opinion? Should, am I adding new information? Should I be rejecting this information? Um, it's not something that I've seen really people talk about pushing into their systems that they, they want because it's the way that we already experience the world. So are we trying to get humans to completely change the way that they experience the world so that they can leverage our, what we've created from our knowledge sharing or our data sharing practices, or do we want to move as much as we can towards like, what is the already human experience and that we just kind of try and mirror it from how we we do knowledge and, and data sharing and things like that. You know, like I said, I think it's a little bit of a petulant thought, but at the same point, I don't know. What what, what are your reactions to that? Yeah, well, I, I would completely agree. I think that is the next step. And, and whether we think we're doing that or not now with how we're thinking about data mesh, I, I think it's a step in that direction. I think what we've done in the past since kind of the, the beginning of computing is that we we've we've had to we've had to deal with the limitations of the technology and and so we've become conditioned in a sense to be able to to operate in the way that the technology could operate that it had limitations in 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 the way it does things and and i think if you look hard at the past 20 or 30 years we're really bending to the limitations of the technology uh, for instance, why do we have centralized architectures? Well, because 34 years ago, that was the only way that we could really do that. Um, to put out a decentralized architecture would have been unheard of. It would have been unthought of. So we've been somewhat conditioned by the machines. But now I think we're coming to a place where we can start saying, well, we have the technology to start making the machines bend to our way of doing things, or at least... Um, the way we perceive that we do things. And, and I think that opens up a lot of possibilities. Yeah. I think that's, it's just something that that's so to me, I, I'm very much a kind of 
I don't want to say practical versus impractical, but I'm like, okay, I think about what is the art of, art of the possible, but within the bounds. And like, we need uh, bigger thinkers to to think outside of the bounds, which I think is part of why data mesh has, has upset a lot of people is that it's like, well, these, these are outside of the bounds. So uh, it's not going to work, right? Because it's, <laughs> it's not what we've done before. So, um, but yeah, I, I, well, and I, I think it, what an interesting tie into this conversation might be to pop to even a, a very high level and say like, what was it from within data mesh that kind of caught your eye when you're thinking about um, your your background and your experience of of looking at how we actually experience the world? I think there's a lot of tie-ins that we've had in, in kind of private conversations about like, what was it that that made you, was it just that it's thinking differently and that it's it's trying to shake things up and that it might be, or was there any specific thing that really kind of caught your eye to it or? Yeah. Well, certainly anything that, that is new and different um, (laughs) catches my attention, whether or not it keeps my attention is another matter. But in this particular case, you know, I had, and many people have said this, I, I, I've thought about some of the, the concepts that, uh, Shamak laid out in the first two articles prior to reading the articles, and, and that's what brought my attention to them. Um, uh, I will say that uh, you know my thoughts weren't as uh, cohesive or as nearly as articulated as hers, uh, but it, it did ring a bell to me because I've seen you know in my own experience in, in doing you know data integration or software that deals with data integration that there was a there's always been a disconnect. Uh, between, you know, application software and, you know, the data that it produces, they were almost, uh, you know, two separate, you know, well, two distinct islands, um, so to speak, and, and that really they belonged together. And I think that was the biggest thing that these the data, metadata and, and logic or code, as it's described, uh, really belong together before you can start to do interesting things. And this was the first nod that I had ever seen outside of my own thoughts to that, uh, which is described now as a data product. And so that, that was really the, the big interest for me. Um, and I, I'm also interested in those that promote, um, you know, data more as a first class citizen, although I do think there are limits to that. So for instance, uh, uh, Dave McComb, uh, promotes data centricity. And I think believe we had a conversation one time where I, I mentioned, you know, isn't that swinging the pendulum too far the other way? And he said, uh, you know, you know, perhaps, but because we want to get the attention of folks in the industry that we're not paying enough attention to the data problem. Um, we're not giving it the, the, the first class citizen, citizenry that it deserves, that this is a way to do that. But, but I do think somewhere in the middle, um, and, and maybe this is just me being a centrist somewhere in the middle is where the truth lies. And that is that these components are all bundled together. Um, and that's the basis which, from which we should start working. We're not a data engineer necessarily a software engineer. We are, um, dealing with knowledge. And I know there's, there's a term knowledge engineer, and I'm not sure I, I'm attributing what I'm thinking to what they're thinking. Um, but, but I do think that's where we're, we're headed that, you know, the pendulum is not swinging too far to the right or too far to the left, that we're dealing with things as, 
as we as humans deal with them. And, and that is the basis for building, you know, the next generation technology. And I think the non-tightly coupled nature of the data products is really crucial. But as people have said, you know, if we haven't, if we don't figure out how to do the integration well, then data integration is all the time, you know, that's where we spend most of our effort on. And so we have to figure out how, how to get there. But I do think that it's better to, in, in a lot of instances, to start at least with the high quality data and that it really represents what it's trying to represent and that we can figure out how to do integrations. You know, Samia Rahman on her episode talked about, well, we can kind of evolve where we need, we don't need all data inter- to interoperate with all other data, right? It's fine to have certain things that that interoperate when we need them to and that we can evolve those, but we haven't had the this evolutionary concept around data. It's been, and part of that's been the technology, I think, right? You, you and I kind of talked about this as well of with a data warehouse, with, with an enterprise data warehouse, not with data warehousing, which is the fun of language. Uh, <laughs> there's a difference between those, but you kind of have to get everything pretty right at the uh, at the start, right? And and it's starting to um, already have issues even before you deploy it because you spent so much time threading all these needles, and then the needles are already starting to move and and all of that. But we haven't really had something that works where we haven't had that tight coupling or we haven't had that really strict limitations. So. I mean, if you were talking to somebody that was that was feeling the the pain of of working in a completely different way in a, in a new world, like how how would you talk to them to to get them over to your way of thinking? Like, how would you give them the the gentle uh, you know go and take them by the hand instead of shove or tug? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, you know, I. I I think the data mesh is is going to take some time in, in the underlying concepts behind it. They'll, they'll probably evolve over the next few years for sure. Um, not to say that the core concepts are not solid, but I, I do think that in coming to an understanding and bringing more people on board, uh, that, that, you know, it's inevitable that it will evolve. But if I'm trying to bring somebody on board um, to thinking in this way, uh, I would... Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's a difficult prospect because, you know, I, I kind of ex- accepted these concepts early on because it was a, it was a, it was in a product of my own frustrations. Uh, but not everybody probably perceives it in that way. Uh, maybe they're just fine with the way things are. Um, but I guess I would speak to their frustrations first and then attempt to paint a picture as to if things were thought of in a different way where there is this tight coupling between, you know, data, metadata and code, you know, how m- that might resolve some of their frustrations and, and then let them run with that. Um, I think it's always important for, for those you're trying to um, convey a concept to for them to take ownership. So start there, plant the seed uh, based on frustrations um, and then let them kind of take it from there. 
And if you're successful in that, then, um, you know, there's not a lot of convincing that you have to do after that. They, they take ownership of it and it starts with, you know, pain points in much the same way that people are articulating why products are so great, because if they address pain points, people like them. Right. And, and I think that's another conversation that, that, um, I want to jump down is kind of the product concept and kind of how we actually apply product thinking and how that could go wrong within data. But um, one point that you had made to me previously that I think is is really important when people are thinking about how they would create a, a data quantum is you were talking about how you think data is is pretty flat, that it's it's 2D and, and you know, how do we get to 3D and maybe even, you know, talking about 4D or whatever, like how, how would you kind of characterize that? Or how would you explain what you mean by data has been kind of flat? It's been 2D and then where we need to go with that. Sure. So, um, yeah, that, that was a good conversation. I, and I never thought of it that way. You know, you hear, um, people in physics, uh, use that analogy of the 2D man, you know, that uh, the world that he lives in. But I think it's very applicable here uh, because people are either on one side of the this swinging pendulum or another, and they're thinking in uh, inadequate dimensions. And so if you, th- if you think about the 2D man, and let's just take a, a use case for the 2D man, you know, there's a line drawn in front of him, and he only thinks in terms of data or only thinks in terms of code, uh, one or the other. He has a barrier to cross. He wants to get to the other side. He doesn't think to walk over um, the barrier um, because he's a two-dimensional being. Um, He has to go around it, and it may be a very long line, and hence the problem. But he doesn't see what's obvious to those of us who live in the three-dimensional world. Um, And so I think that's how I see the frustrations of people who are very, you know, held to you know, one side of the fence or the other, and they're not seeing the bigger picture, which is the reality of it, right? And so the more dimensions that you add to your thought process, the simpler the problem sets become because you can see, you know, from, well, multiple dimensions. So if you add 3D, it becomes simpler. If you add 4D, which is, if you go back to physics, that would be time, it's a simpler proposition as well. So just thinking about those and thinking about the 2D man and how that applies to the way we've been thinking about things, I think is, is, is a helpful exercise to begin with. Um, and I did, that didn't occur to me until we started having that conversation. But then, you know, again, uh, when we had the conversation, I was drawing, I don't remember the exact context, but I was drawing a reference to something else I had learned that I thought was completely different that it was actually completely relevant. So see, these are the connections that you make to start gaining insight as people, right? This is what we want our technology to help us do. Not do for us, but help us do, right? So and I'm still a fan of people, process, and technology. It, it's all, again, the, the, that's another quantum, right? Um, if you think about that. So th- there needs to be some kind of symbiosis or, or, or the like in that. Yeah, well, and I think the episode that we were that was talking about kind of 40 objects or hyper objects was Joao Rosa. And I think you and I had both just kind of 
uh, well, I mean, you had just listened to it. I had recorded it a, a month prior, but um, I, I think that that's a very useful concept because, again, with data, we've tried to lock onto this is what we're going to share and we're going to keep sharing it until it breaks, even if the real world has changed. Like, what what is that organization experiencing? Has that has that become something different? And how um, how do we represent what's actually going on instead of how do we keep sharing the same report? Like, I want to hang on to this report for the um, with a death grip because I want it to be this same thing. Versus, well, shouldn't we be sharing like what's actually happening? The the if what you're sharing in data isn't evolving, is your business evolving with the real world or, like, or you're not sharing your, your data isn't there to be data. It's there to share what, what is actually happening with the organization. What is it experiencing? So I think it's, it's an interesting um, analogy that, that you would come up with. And I, and I really liked it. Um, I did want to talk about the, um, the concept of, of the product mindset. We were talking about this a little bit. That there was, um, you know, a post that uh, Juan Cicada and uh, Tim Gasper had talked about, uh, or they had put out of their data product ABCs. Tim was on the podcast, kind of when they were first developing this. So, would love to get kind of your feedback on that and where where I think, you know, I, I posted that data as a or data products and data as a product are very, very different. And that we have to think about kind of what you were talking about, that the life cycle generation of information and knowledge, rather than, you know, just thinking about what is the data product, it's, we're trying to share the organizational experience. That's right. embedding product thinking into everything. Cause it's like, okay, we're, we're doing, uh, um, we have to really think about, not that the data product is the end result or that that's what we're trying to get to. It's we're trying to get to sharing that and we're doing that via product. So um, you were saying yes. some really interesting things there. And I want to give you kind of the the floor to to talk about what you were, what your reaction was as well. Yeah, that's actually a very good way to put it, Scott. Um, I, I see the data product as a means to an end. Um, and if you look at, you know, um, Jamak's uh, data mesh principles and logical architecture, the, you know, she, she talks about the data product as a concept, as, as the architectural quantum or like the, this minimum brick or building block in which you want to build your, your knowledge. And it, it has the unfortunate, um, uh, I guess, fortunate uh, experience of, 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 uh, having the word product in it. And so that's a little bit ambiguous. And I, although I'm not against thinking about data in terms of a product, um, necessarily, especially if you're a data marketplace, you're actually, this is the end product, but oftentimes data, you know, useful knowledge or useful information within an organization is, is a means to an end and not an end in itself, as you describe. So, um, I, I think that ambiguity, at least in my mind, can cause folks to think about only the extrinsic, extrinsic value of data and not its intrinsic value to the organization. Um, 
And, and I think that's where the fork in the road um, it, it has yet to be had with the with the those interested in data mesh. We'll see how it evolves. Uh, my interpretation may be entirely wrong, but I, I tend to think that that it is a means to an end and not an end in itself, and that it is it is not a microcosm business within a business. And and although there are many positive attributes of once you start to think of something as a consumer product, there are certain things that you do that you wouldn't do in a project. Those are good things. And I could see the parallels there. Um, but I think you can achieve those things um, without this thought of monetization, whether that's real or just perceived. Um, and there could be negative consequences to, to always putting a dollar sticker on things. It could, it could skew you know, your intended outcomes. So it's just another way to think about it. And it's not clear to me how many other people have been thinking about it. I think uh, Juan probably has Mindshare in that respect. I think a lot of people are thinking of in terms of, you know, this is actually a product, whether or not money is exchanging hands within an organization, et cetera. I think many people um, can relate to that and probably because it's worked in the software world, but you are selling software. Many people are using it directly to interact with their customer base. That makes sense. With data, that kind of comes after. Again, they're intertwined, but it comes after. And, and it's not necessarily something that you're offering to the customer um, in the beginning. It depends, I guess. There's, there's my consulting answer. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's, you know, I had Yarko Moylanin on, and he was talking about... Um, the three different layers of the data economy and there's, you know, sharing internally is his base layer and said that that was the most basic. And I'm like, I, I just didn't necessarily agree. You know, the second layer was um, sharing for a specific purpose. So you might have kind of these data clean room type of things where you're exchanging information with um, other organizations for a very specific use case. And then there was kind of packaging it and selling it. And there's a lot of companies that are heading in this data marketplace concept internally. But I, I kind of agree with you on, or, or I actually strongly agree with you, not kind of, that it can create perverse incentives, right? It can create, I want to create the most popular data product, or that's going to be viewed as having the most value instead of, I'm going to put something out there that we're not sure if it has value, right? And if we're not sure it has value, then should we be doing that? And, and I think when you're in you know, day one, day 90, day 365 of your data mesh journey, you should probably be looking for those things where you have value. And we don't have a good way of measuring intrinsic value either, which is frustrating. But um, that we we have to really think about if we're going to move beyond what we've done with data that we have to be open to, this could be a new source of value for the company that I don't know the explicit dollar exchange kind of monetary. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That it, it, putting a dollar sign on it, or even if it's somewhat contrived, forces the issue as to whether or not it has immediate value. And sometimes you don't know. And a good way to think about this is, you know, a company's R&D uh, division, if they have one, 
um, they're, they're not putting dollar signs on those. They don't know what the value of, of the R&D is going to produce, um, but they incubate it. They see what happens. And so if you don't have that playground, and I'm thinking in terms of data mesh, uh, you may miss out on opportunities if you're forcing the issue as to what kind of value data has. Um, and, and that's not to say that you know, to go back to data lakes and just you know put it out there and maybe sooner or later it's going to have some value. There has to be some some intention about it. But at the same time, again, going to the middle ground, you know, putting a dollar sign on things forces you to think what's the what's the immediate utility of this? And perhaps there isn't any, but it's still valuable. Um, so, you know, how do you address that? And, and there are a couple of companies that have gone down that path. You know, um, EMD Electronics, Emanuel Schweizer was talking about. They're just getting in the habit of sharing way, way more data, but it's not in the form of a data product. And then the data products naturally emerge because people start to say, well, we need this with this quality and this. And, and now that they understand who are the owners and those owners are empowered to actually go and create these data products, that there is this big pool. Justin Cunningham had said that that's what worked for them well in, in theirs as well. Um, that when he was at, um, especially when he was at Yelp and somewhat at, at Netflix of just sharing a whole bunch of data and not saying we're going to make it, you know, product level, but we're going to show you what we've got so you can play around with it and say what might have value. And then you start that negotiation of, okay, we think this has value. What aspect, you know, um, Emily Gorsinski's episode around SLOs talked about that of like, What's actually valuable about this? Is it that it's super, super timely or is it that it's super, super accurate or like what matters and what doesn't so that we're not saying everything has to hit these, you know, five very difficult to hit SLOs. We can start to relax constraints as to, you know, oh, okay, the accuracy on this is it's much lower, but the timeliness is, is much um, shorter. So it's it's as things are happening, we get that picture. So. Um, I, I think it's really, it's tough because to get budget to actually do something, people have to see the value. But so I, I don't know if what we're thinking of is a little bit pie in the sky. Like, wouldn't it be nice? Uh, we are seeing people that, that are having benefits from doing this, but it's, it's, I think we'll see kind of two different camps and I don't think one is necessarily right or wrong, but I'd love to get kind of your, your feelings on, on that as well. Yeah. I, I don't think it's one or the other. I, I think you can, you can implement data mesh principles and perhaps you only focus on the, the ones with high immediate utility. If, if there's pressure to get some value out of it. If, if your organization is more adventurous and they have the latitude to say, we want to do a little bit of discovery, we want to do a little, a little R&D, then certainly, it, with, with a potential payoff, then certainly, you know, go in that direction, right? Um, and, and what does that look like? I mean, that, that looks like when, you know, when I have certain ideas that I think are a little bit crazy, um, I don't throw them away necessarily. I, I keep them in the back of my mind. But as I get more and more connections based on conversations I have with people, things that I read, things that I experience, and as more co com or connections kind of accrue, then to me, those the number of connections to that thought starts to accrue value. 
And I, and I think if I were to think of the value of data product, it's the number of connections to other things that defines its value, because that means you're onto something, right? Yeah, that, that's that, I never really developed it, but the Scott's confusing ass equation, equation, the SCAE, was like each data product individually has value, but like when does the incremental value of adding a data product is it greater in its connections than in and of itself, right? You know, each data product has right. one point of of product value, and for each product that it's connected to, it has point one. Um, value. So, you know, when you've got two, it's like, okay, those two connect, but each one is one and the interconnection between them is worth 0.1. But when you get 500 and they may not all be interconnected with each other, but you know, you get 500 of those and those interconnections really start to, it's the, I can't remember, is it combinatorial mathematics? Like the combinations end up being so much higher than the um, you know, first order of, of each of the dots, the combinations between the two, diff- the dots end up being so much greater. So I think, I, I think what you're talking about, maybe when we figure out how to do data products, like the cost of an incremental data product is relatively low, that that's when we can really start to turn on the, let's test this out. Let's, let's do the product marketing and figure out like, Hey, we created this thing. Is this of use? Like, and that you, you don't have what we've kind of had with, we're not sure if somebody's consuming it. So we have to keep producing it. If you have the information that nobody's consuming it, you can shut it down. Maybe that's the other aspect of it is that it's not even just the development costs, but it's the ongoing costs as well, that we have that information flow. Yeah, I I think I agree that we that that you know data by a product by itself may not have uh, you know very high utility, um, and certainly when you you pair it with other other products, that's when you're going to get the real value. But uh, you don't know what that's going to be yet, and um, the challenge is you know right now at least we're just not there in terms of being able to dynamically produce products with ease and at low cost. It's an uphill climb and it's all very new. Um, you know, many argue that this is not a technology issue, data mesh, but certainly the, the tooling now is lacking um, it, it, towards this effort in thinking in this way. There are a lot of tools, but not cohesive tools that allow you to put out products in the way that I can put out thoughts and just tuck them away and and then wait for, for, for something else that relates to it to to give it some more value. When we get to a point where we can do those sorts of things, um, then that life cycle for a data product uh, would be much simpler and we can focus on things that have potential value. Um, and if they don't work out and you know the machinery behind it can determine that it doesn't have value, then you can throw it away. Uh, but I, yeah, it, it does seem like there is an uphill climb in producing the data product now and that kind of pushes aside potentials. And so you really have to look hard for, you know, what's going to give me the immediate bang for the buck. That's where we are now. But I, I think in time, we won't be there. We'll be at a place where we can do some exploratory. Um, or maybe that's pie in the sky. I don't know. But but certainly, if we're trying to create uh, 
the ultimate sh- machine and the machine is us, I think that's where we're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we do end up having to move towards mirroring the way humans understand and think and work. And I mean, it's funny uh, how many different, my, my brain is kind of overloaded at this point. Like I need to, I'm going to go take the dog on a walk and just think <laughs> like I usually listen to a podcast or whatever. And I think I'm just going to think and just let things kind of sink in. Cause uh, we covered a, a lot of different stuff, but it, a lot of it's really making me rethink or it's it's narrowed in my thinking on a lot of different things. So this has been really great for me. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover or is there any way you want to kind of wrap up the the kind of uh, everything we've covered here? Uh, no, um, it, it, you know, I, I'd love to see some some feedback on these sorts of thoughts. I'd love to connect with other people that are thinking in this way or have something to add to it. I, I'm always open to that, so I, I will put that out there. But I think uh, we've uh, um, we've we've done enough. We've reached our limits for for this conversation, and I'll give you a break. <laughs> uh, but and and I do highly recommend. I mean, I've uh, been chatting with Andrew, um, kind of in uh, you know. DMs and stuff for months and months. It's probably over a year now, right? Like that we've been chatting and everything like that. So um, I do recommend that that people uh, reach out because this again, it's I think you're that person in the community that is a really really helpful sounding board and that you you play off of people very well for these conversations. So I do recommend people reach out Um, if if you. If people do want to reach out, uh, where's the best place? Is it like just the Slack or LinkedIn or what, what's the, the easiest place to kind of get in touch with you? Uh, LinkedIn would be great. I'm a big user of, of LinkedIn or Slack. Um, would be fine. Okay. And and from your company standpoint, if people want to reach out, what's kind of, do you have a specialty that, that you'd want uh, that you think if people are, are running across specific challenges, that that's something that you uh, are, are helpful on that as well. I want to make sure that people are aware of what the company does. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Generally speaking, DataSecia focuses on uh, data engineering concerns um, and uh, may be surprising, but I don't necessarily focus on data mesh, although I think that will be changing in, in the future uh, simply because uh, my customer base, they're, they're just, they're smaller to mid-sized companies and they don't have those pain points that we spoke about before. Uh, but you know, data engineering concerns, uh, a lot of projects around just helping organize teams, you know, many of the companies I come across, they have the resources, but they just don't have the experience in building, you know, software products or, or data teams. And that's where they need help. So I guide them through, through that process. And, and that's a result of my experience in, in, in the spectrum of, uh, you know, a few startups to exit to, uh, working at IBM in, in information management and Watson Health. And so those were different experiences going back to that again, <laughs> as, as I have this whole conversation. But but it, it led me to some conclusions on how teams uh, should be run. Yeah, yeah. And again, it all depends, but uh, I have some success there. <laughs> well, again, Andrew, thank you so much for spending the time uh, with me today. And, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Andrew Padilla, who runs a data and software consulting company, DataSecia, and serves as editor of the Data Mesh Learning Community newsletter. 
You can find a link to his LinkedIn, his Substack, his company website, and the Data Mesh Learning Newsletter Substack in the show notes. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.